as if there wasn't enough disruption in life these days with all that's going on, there recently became a huge disruption in the, in the church, in the more conservative side of the church, regarding a man named Joshua Harris, which probably, I'm guessing, a bunch of you are familiar with him. <clears throat> For those of you who are not familiar with him, I'm going to read just a, sh- a clip of a report done by one man. Says the evangelical world has been roiled by the headlines concerning Joshua Harris. First came the news of his divorce, and then came the news of his departure from the Christian faith. It's hard to imagine a more sobering news. Joshua Harris was the son of Greg and Sono Harris, um, who also played a big part in the early homeschooling days. Uh, they're very well known. And so to see this happen with her son must be heartbreaking for them. The report goes on and says, we have to go back to 1997 with the release of the book entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The book was by Joshua Harris and it became an evangelical publishing phenomenon, eventually selling 1.2 million copies. That tells you some of the influence he's had in the church. The central thesis of the book is that evangelicals have been flirting with the disaster by their involvement in the dating culture. Harris spoke of his own experience and prescriptively began to outline a shift from dating to a model of courtship. This represented a significant evangelical cultural pushback in the 1990s to the sexual licentiousness of the culture in general and the fact that a very loose dating culture had indeed brought a great deal of sin and grief to so many young people. I believe he means young people in the church. Harris effectively called for an end to the entire system of dating among adolescents and young adults. Instead, he pointed to a more ecclesial and family-based model of courtship. So even if you don't know about Harris, you certainly can see by what little I've read that it had a huge impact on the church with regards to a very tough issue And he stood his ground until now. For him to turn his back on a whole life devoted to the church is just really a shock to many, isn't it? In case some of you are not familiar with with all that he's done, I thought of a couple of illustrations to try and get an idea of what happens to the church when a very influential member turns its back on him. Imagine, if you will, after the Revolutionary War, after the Constitution was written, that George Washington stood up in Congress and he said it was, he was not so sure anymore about that it was a good idea not to have a king. Let's say he also wrote a letter to the King of England stating that he was sorry for his part in the rebellion. Can you imagine how that would affect people? Or imagine, if you will, Abraham Lincoln, after all that was said and done with the Civil War, that he was having second thoughts about slavery, that maybe the South should be allowed to have their slaves. After such monumental efforts with so many lives lost, the country would be devastated by such an announcement. This is the effect that Harris is having on the conservative side of the professing church. A falling away is so bad that people begin to question whether Harris was ever really a true believer or not. 
Because Scripture makes it ever so clear that when God saves a soul and that person is regenerated, it's permanent. And I've always believed that if God comes in your life, something's going to happen, something's going to change, don't you? How then can it happen that people who have made their whole lives centered on the truths of the Bible and help so many people turn around and say, they don't believe it anymore, they're unsure about it. It's understandable when somebody changes their mind who's been doing something wrong all along and realizes, hey, this isn't right, I need to change my mind. We expect that, we want that to happen. But how do you account for such behavior of somebody like Joshua Harris? Sadly, perhaps of all places, it's easiest to take place within the spiritual matters, even Christian homes. You take a young person who's grown up in a strong Christian atmosphere. But just as other people do because of their sin nature, they want to be accepted and approved, don't they? All people are like this. They try to excel in all things they do, which includes all the spiritual things like reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, getting five stars and everything in Sunday school. They become knowledgeable in scriptural principles and in classroom or church settings, they say all the very correct things at an early age and we're all impressed. This gets them all kinds of attention which helps their insecure sin nature. Maybe they're even class valedictorian at their Christian school and they go into college to do the same. And years go by and life is fast and they get tested and they find themselves living in an anti-Christian society and there's huge pressure to tolerate all things. And they hear arguments that make sound reasonable to men and, and they sound fair and they begin to question what they believe. And they fall away. And everyone wonders how that can happen. And this is how it happens. They did everything everybody said, but they were never born again. And it's happened over the years, over the centuries. I read about a preacher who had served in the church for 25 years and then got saved. He said, this one fact I did not know that salvation is Christ and the assurance of salvation is Christ based upon his word. <clears throat> the blood secures, the word assures. I believed and preached salvation by grace, holy of the Lord, but I never experienced it in my own heart as a living reality. I knew about Christ and his word, but I did not know him. Can you imagine a preacher after 25 years saying such a thing? This is because I had missed the Holy Spirit's conviction and Bible repentance and had built my religious superstructure upon an intellectual faith in God's word without having known anything about heartfelt repentance. Well, he did get saved or he wouldn't have written that. It's not a new concept in the church. You can see this when you read the Bible and you see where Paul talks about Demas. At one time he's talking about Demas serving with him and then he's talking about Demas leaving him. We humans can and are wrong about a lot of things in life, but I'm going to tell you this morning, this is one place that you don't want to be wrong. You want to be completely honest and deal seriously with God in this matter of salvation. 
This is not a place to let your pride get in the way or anything else for that matter. The consequences are too great if you don't. And this is made clear by what we call one of the scary verses in the Bible. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. And in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We learn from that. Just because somebody calls Jesus Lord doesn't mean they're going to heaven. Doesn't mean they know him. This means there are people who say they believe in God and maybe are even religious, but somehow something went wrong. They've missed it. Jesus says, he, but he who does the will of my Father. I'm sure these guys who say, Lord, Lord, before the Lord in judgment, thought they were doing God's will. You can see it in the next verse, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Notice their words are like a plea, aren't they? They are words of defense. They're trying to make a case for themselves. And it sounds pretty good if you look at the words of face value. They spoke for the Lord Jesus. They even cast out demons in his name. They did many wonders, which implies they did miracles somehow. So then why were they wrong? And it matters. It really does matter. It's so serious that, that they didn't see their error, or maybe they just avoided it. it ha- it's different for different people. It's so serious because the key issue in life, we can see this if we ask ourselves, what the day was that the Lord is talking about when he says, in that day. On what day are they having to say these things to the Lord? When would it be that people would have to give an account for their lives to God? There's only one place in Scripture that describes something like this. And that passage is known as the Great White Throne. And this is why you can't be wrong about this. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Apostle John is writing, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was no place found for them. On the great white throne is a great judge. The word him is capitalized, so we know that means it is none other than the Lord himself. And if you look at the next verse, it says it's plainly. It's also confirmed by the immensity of the situation, which we'll see as we go through it. It says the planet that we live on and the starry heavens above us tried to get away from this scene. They're so affected by its pre- his presence. How does a solar system run away? Where can it go? Why is the solar system afraid of the presence of the Lord? You have to remember that when sin entered the world, it affected creation. 
In this scene, at least creation has the sense to know it doesn't belong in front of a holy God. If the planet and the heavens cannot escape his presence, then neither can we. Like how one preacher describes this, he says, It is the throne of majesty unlimited. It is the throne of sovereignty unchallenged. It is the final judgment seat for the judge of all the earth to sit and make his judgment. It is the final place of reckoning. It is a dazzling, blinding, blazing, pure, holy, divine throne of the presence of God where he sits in utter and absolute judgment. As I read through, it's amazing how all this is described in a few verses without a lot of embellishment and stacks of adjectives that could be used, so I'm going to try to use some. (laughs) Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Remember, John is writing, and he sees the dead, great and small. Notice that he does not say the good and bad. Who are the dead? Notice he calls them the dead. But as soon as you and I read this, we know he's talking about people, don't we? Well, let's consider the context. At this point in the whole scheme of time and eternity, the rapture has already happened. The tribulation has already happened. The great tribulation has taken place and the millennium is over. Life as you and I know it is gone. The creation as you and I know it, well, you see it wants to flee the situation, but it's going to be gone too. This is a scene that all you and I can do is watch with our hands over our mouths. These can't be those who are saved, can they? God would never refer to them as dead because Jesus said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. It has to be those who didn't believe standing before the throne. And that's going to become clear here. It says, the great and the small, the famous and the nobodies, the rich and the poor, the accomplished and the lazy, the leaders and the followers, the rulers and the subjects. John Phillips writes, There is a terrible fellowship there, the dead, small and great, standing before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose sins were very drab and dowdy, mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will be there who sinned with a high hand with dash and courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world for their stage who died unrepentant at last. Now one and all are arraigned and on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and last time. And what happens to them? Verse 12, chapter 20, Revelation. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. 
books are open. If you end up standing there, I'm sure there'll be a book with your name on it, but I hope nobody in here ends up in this, in this situation. It says, The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So we see this is a courtroom scene, don't we? Because judging has taken place. The books contain evidence. The courtroom is different, though, as you might suspect. One man puts it this way, there'll be no debate about guilt or innocence. There'll be a prosecutor, but no defender. There'll be an accuser, but no advocate. There'll be an indictment, but no case for the charged. There'll be a swift presentation of the convicting evidence, but no rebuttal, a testimony with no cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury. There will be a sentence but no appeal, a punishment with no parole, in a jail with no escape. The petty courts of earth fall short of this one. Somewhere unknown to us between heaven and earth, between the world as we know it now and the new heaven and the new earth, this judgment will take place and it's the last courtroom that will ever convene throughout all eternity. After this, no one will ever be tried again and God will never again act as judge. Man has lived and done as he wanted. And many have decided that there is no God or God doesn't care because it doesn't seem like he does anything ever. Which really, if you think about it, is a condemnation of man himself. But God is not aloof. He's paying very close attention that's why those books are full. And he says in Psalm verse 50, or Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. One of man's most wrong conclusions is that he has tended to think that God is like him, does things like him, acts like him, has the same motivations as him. We even had one major religion that says God was once a man and became God. He's not like us. And that curtain is pulled back in verse 50. We would not listen to him, and so he kept silent. And we use the silence to justify our actions, and all these actions ended up in the books we now read about. And you can be sure it's not just actions as well. There have been those who I've tried to talk to over the years about the Lord, what the Bible says, and what they need to do. And they push me off and they say, eh, it's okay, I'll be okay. God knows my heart. Have you ever heard people say that to you before? God knows my heart. You know what? He does know your heart. And that's not a good thing, is it? <laughs> You ever thought about that? So uh, in these books will be all that's in your heart, all your thoughts. Would it be okay if we took that book and put it on Amazon for sale? Would that be okay with you? You see, even our thoughts condemn us, don't they? You say, but I've done some good things too. Won't those be in the book? 
and people haven't thought about this, but good really does not outweigh bad. Either a person is good or they're bad. This is like a criminal standing before a human judge. Why don't they sit up there and tell the judge all the good things that they've done while they're being prosecuted for a crime? How come they don't bring out all the stuff that's positive? <laughs> because it won't do any good, will it? And why do people think that's going to happen in heaven and judgment before God? When you do wrong things, it pours cold water all over any good thing you might have done. Does God agree with that? These are verses that you know really well, some of you. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. All our righteous deeds are filthy rags. The one that gets me is Romans 3.10. I, I often quote it, but it's so true, it's so right. This is, this is the Lord speaking. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. We really don't understand God. There is none who seeks after God. So if that's all true, what happens next? Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So verse 13 can be a little hard to understand. Why does he mention here those who died in the sea? I think we understand death is the grave and Hades is the place where the dead go before the judgment is we're reading about. But as far as him talking about the, those who um, died in the sea, I like what one guy says here. He says, All that have been buried in the depths of the ocean, this number in aggregate will be great. If we include all who were swept off the, by the flood, all who perished by shipwreck, and all who have been killed in naval battles and buried in the sea, and all who have been swept away in inundations of the ocean, and all who have peacefully died at sea as sailors or in the pursuit of commerce or benevolence, the number in aggregate will be immense, a number so vast that it was proper to notice them, particularly in the account of the general resurrection and the last judgment. That makes sense to me. It's also true that back then they considered uh, people who died at sea that to be extra bad, really bad somehow. And uh, the question might have come up in earlier times, you know, what about the people who died at sea? And God doesn't leave anything out. But he goes on to say, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then the verse personifies death and Hades, doesn't it? We have to remember at this time, we're at the end of existence as we know it. And after this, the new heavens and the new earth will be, be made, but there'll be no more death. So what happens to death is described in verse 14. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. No more death. And we learn something new here if you've not seen it before. The first death everybody knows about, it's a physical death, right? But now we learn about a second death that most people are unfamiliar with. And it's described as the lake of fire. 
the lake of fire, it's very descriptive in few words, isn't it? It's a death like no other. Bill McDonald calls it the final prison, a place where no one ever leaves. And it's fitting in the last line, verse 15, solemn and final. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you remember how the verses started off calling the people the dead, you might also think in Ephesians 2, it says something similar, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead, which is worse than being physically dead. And this is why we have to be born again, which is not the joining of some religious movement or even some church. It's being made alive again by God himself. Jesus said, you must be born again to see heaven. Amar Dahan says it this way, he says, they that are born but once will have to die twice. But they who have been born twice will die only once. God permanently assigns people to eternal death because they rejected the death of Christ for their sins. This is the second death. And this has been called by some the biggest tragedy. You know why? In the whole scope of things, hell was made for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for people. But because we sinned like the devil did, we end up where the devil does. So now we go back to Matthew chapter 7 and read and finish this in light of the day that Jesus was talking about. Starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, now you know what day that is, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, and then we parted, but I never knew you. There never has been any connection between you and I. The critical observation here is that people who thought they knew God will find out that they did not know him, and it will be too late. The consequences for wrong thinking or wrong decision is beyond measure. Those people are sitting in churches today. It's true many are in false churches, but some of them are sitting in real churches. So close to the truth and yet so far away. This is not a game, is it? This is very serious. The most serious choice in life. It would seem to me that the Lord probably had tried to speak to Joshua Harris, but he was not listening. The story I read to you was about a man named Pastor Shelton, and he describes how God spoke to him about his condition. If God is speaking to you, then do what he says, no matter what the cost is. Your pride and reputation in this world means nothing in the end. 
You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose but your pride, which if you think about it, is not really something you want to hold on to. Let me say this as well. If you're trying to help a person see that their profession of faith is not real, please be really careful how you talk to them. You do not want to drive them away. You have to remember that we were all unsaved at one time, not seeking God, not interested in God. And God worked patiently, carefully, and kindly with us to bring us to the point where we realized our real condition and realized what he did for each one of us. And we never have the right to go banging somebody over the head and telling them that they're wrong, they don't know what they're doing. Be very careful, the soul is so precious. Because the three hardest words to say are, I was wrong. But if you're in the situation today where you're unsure of your relationship with God, you come here, but you don't necessarily feel apart, and maybe there's something wrong, it's better now to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And better to say now, oh, I was wrong. It's better to say it now than to say it before the great white throne. Because if you end up there, you will say those words. You will realize it with full intensity. You do not want to go there. Thank God for his mercy and grace. It's here, it's now, it's available but there's a point in time when patience runs out, when it's no longer available. He's doing everything. It's your turn. Shall we pray? Lord, how we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God as we think about you sitting on the throne and the whole solar system wanting to get away from you. Where do we stand, Lord? But we are so grateful today as we look in this book and we find the precious words that eternal life is possible through Jesus Christ. Lord, let no one here be deceived. Let no one here let pride overrun this decision that is the most critical decision of all. And thank you so much, Lord, for your patience, your long-suffering, and your willingness to go more than the extra mile that we might be saved. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.